0: Yeah. Okay, let's. More people can be <laughs> hey. See, I mean, you pushed him away. He did it, not me. Oh. <laughs> Bob, you know, I already have a little bag. You don't have to.
1: I'm going to give all I can. Again, I just replaced it. It's amazing. Something's. Um, let's start. Oh, Debbie. I'm um, Matthew. Yes. And
2: Lynn.
1: Matthew and Lynn. Do you have a pen, Diane? Here. Thank Thanks. Thanks. Sorry. Um, we all need it. You said Lynn. Yes. Okay.
0: Can we also remember the sixty six souls on the Egyptian airliner. Oh airliner,
1: yeah. No, don't come in. Would anybody would anybody like me to add anybody to our prayers this morning?
2: Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I had an aunt who has to be actually really understanding
1: when she was ninety-four. Lived independently in a cove and so on. What's her name? Martha. Martha. Here. I'm Bob Alexander. Larry Schieffer. Larry, hi. I'm Carol. Carol? You know that we're at the end of our work on the Divine Comedy? No, we didn't, but
0: we just.
1: We're just jumping in. Okay, just so you know. Oh, okay, let's. Let's start. <laughs> you
0: missed hell. You missed hell.
1: Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life. There's nothing in this world, however much we think we deserve it, um, that isn't a gift from you. We did nothing to earn it. Um, you gave all of this freely and our lives. Thank you for our life from you. Thank you for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. In all that we do this day, help us to carry you, nurture that life. Um, where we have struggles doing that, strengthen us with your grace. Um, I ask for a special blessing for Carrie, Amy, Daniel, For, um, particularly for Dan, um, if you all don't know Dan's, um, Dan was in the emergency room a couple of days, I think his bladder blew out and it sounds to me like things are mending pretty quickly. He said he might be here this morning, but um, be with Dan, um, protect him, surround him with your protection, Um, help him to heal and if he's going to have surgery um, give the the medical team clear minds and sure hands. Ask for a special blessing on Ron and Priscilla help them to find work and a home Um, and ask a blessing for um, Debbie's son and daughter-in-law Matthew and Lynn And this morning, I ask a special blessing on um, all of our marriages, all of us. um, Even where spouses have died or passed on, um, strengthen us, give us the courage to put ourselves away, to bear the sins of each other. Not an easy thing to do. We so often want things our own way. Um, Help us to put ourselves away. to bring to our marriages, the love that you offer us, uh, particularly where it's hard. Um, we ask all of this um, in your name, Christ, our Lord. Amen. You me? <coughs> did, you, did you get it done? Yes. Oh, wonderful! Was he there? Um. <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit discombobulated. Well, no, I'm going to be a little bit more than usually discombobulated this morning. Um, I've got to get to this point of making really clear what Dante's doing in the Paradiso in a way that I don't think I've done yet because I think it's just stunning and I'd like to stun you all <laughs> I hope that's shared but we, we can't duck because we're out of sync next, um, next week next week when we, I, I forgot Monday to do dry, salva- dry Salvages but for those of you who want uh, to prepare, read Dry sauvages, it'll be the last Eliot poem we read, because we only have a couple weeks left. Um, Okay, quick review. This is going to prepare for the Paradiso because it's really important to see this. I think most of us have very clear notions of sin. Um, Nobody wants to read novels about Peace. I mean, if there's no conflict, what is there? What would sustain our interest? We pick up novels because there's suspense, something's going to happen. Somebody can lose something, and there's something to overcome. But who's ever written a novel about peace that interested anybody? It just doesn't happen. So, Dante's done something amazing. A third of his Divine Comedy has to do with. Um, a condition in which there's no conflict, no problems, no sin. He's showing us a state of blessedness, and and, and as I think about it, it, it's actually an extraordinarily exciting thing. Except we're not used to it. We have to have murder and adultery and crimes and robberies and thefts and you know to hold our interest. Purgatory was that middle condition between. <coughs> hell and heaven in which all the sins that we saw in the inferno are being atoned for. The most horrible things on our character. We saw them. Lust, gluttony, avarice, violence, all the various forms of fraud take. In purgatory, we we saw that justice was being answered with the help of mercy. And the the, the great struggle was to bring those two together. And that the souls couldn't move forward without grace without Christ's help because the world doesn't understand um, the, the, the or we, we see very clearly in canto 7 canto 7 is going to blow this whole thing open we see very clearly in canto 7 that the reason man can't atone for his sins on his own is because the the original <coughs> sin was too great our original sin was against God so there was no way to atone for that so the only way they can make it through purgatory is with God's help and we saw that in purgatory, all of the souls were attempting to recover the virtues. And if you remember, the goad for every one of the levels was Mary, in some state of virtue. So that what, can you close that time? Thanks. um, um the, the natural goodness that humans were intended to have is being realized. Um, So, every one of the sins, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, lust, every one of those had as its first goad a virtue. Humility, modesty, um, I gave you that cheat, um, chastity, you know, that went through, so that by the time the soul arrived at the earthly paradise, that person had attained his um, natural goodness again, what was lost in the fall. When Dante reaches that point, he and Virgil and, and Stasius um, rise to the earthly paradise, and it's at that point that Dante has that reckoning. This is our review, right? And we saw that, um, according to Dante, and I think this is pretty, pretty close to St. Thomas. Every human being will have a personal reckoning of his own because there is going to be some way in which each of us has had, um, had has betrayed a Christ bearer. That, that person for Dante is Beatrice. That she was the one that first awakened in him the, the, an actual image of the Trinity and a human person. The beauty of God was present in her. So when she died and he wasn't faithful to her, he had to answer for that. So that that moment of reunion is not just somebody from God returning to pick up where Virgil leaves off. It involved a reckoning. He had to answer for that, that betrayal, because it was deeper than everything else. So there's some way in which each of us will have to answer for a betrayal of some Christ image in our life, whoever that happens to be. My general sense of it is that most of us will, that for most of us, that will be our spouses because we bear a lot together. Um, but I, 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 I can't say that definitively. I just, from what we learned from Dante. Um, and we talked about Beatrice, that she comes from God. She's a, she's a Christ bearer, she images him. She's come t- to complete the journey for Dante because she can show him things Virgil can't. Virgil's limited to his nat- to the human natural powers. Beatrice brings in a wisdom and a light from God so that she can help him learn those things that are available to reason, but only with the help of supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity. And she's stern. We talked about that. She's stern. And, and, and remember, the sternness just wasn't directed at Dante, because I quoted that passage, I think, where she speaks to Matilda. Mm -hmm. Matilda says she almost felt like she had to um, answer something she should have been guilty for. It it wasn't. It's just that Dante makes us aware that we're in the presence of something divine. It's numinous. There's something dreadful, awful to God. And Beatrice carries something of that in her. So we're about to enter into a world. Remember, remember when, when Dante gets nervous, when Beatrice first appears, First thing he does is want to turn to Virgil for help. He's not there. And he gets this scolding because when we're faced with things that we don't understand, our first natural response is to go back to those things we're comfortable with. It's like hiding. We want shelter. When you're in the presence of divine things, it's, it, it makes us fear and trembling. Those Paul's words, fear and trembling. We're in the presence of something dreadful, the awful. There's an element of that in Beatrice.
2: Sorry, Tom, yeah. No, I was thinking about, when did when did Dante discover Beatrice as a divine image? I mean, was that his part of the original intuition? Into, because he met her, what, when she was nine years old? Mm-hmm. And when he, he, was young, he was young, yeah. He was young? Yes. But does that does that evolve? I mean, he doesn't understand that in the beginning when he's a child. My My suggestion to you all is,
1: at the end of the Divine Comedy, this book that we have is his "On La Vita Nuova," the, the new life. It's his recollection of that experience with Beatrice and the women. So he recounts it. The Vita Nuova is one of the most famous troubadour poems that's ever been written. We've got it in this edition. He recalls that experience. Um, it's they, upon reflection, huh? It's upon reflection, yeah. He's looking back. Okay. Um, and it's all it's all set out in this lyric drama. It's not an epic. It's a lyric poem, it's a troubadour poem. But he describes the beauty in his, and the way he is overcome in his heart. He has to deal with the God of death and, I mean, he just... Um, it's, a, it's a conversion, transforming experience for him to see her. And then sometime after that she dies. And you know it, I mean, because it's recounted here when she <coughs> says, and I died and you should have been more faithful to then, than. instead you turn to the flesh. um um, this let's see what to do here i want to come back to this because this to me is crucial um remember that every canticle each of the three canticles the inferno the purgatory the perdiso has its own mode of being, its own mode of living, its own mode of activities. The mode of the Inferno is irony. We've seen that as Dante and Virgil pass through. We're made aware, and Dante tells us the story. We're made aware of what the sinners themselves don't see. So we 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 live with that. And I tried to make the distinction between irony and humility. That um, irony. Um, is a situation in which people are not aware of something that they don't see, and we're aware of the discrepancy. Irony is is like a pre-step to humility, because through our experiences of irony, we're made aware that people very often don't see things that they think they do. And that should help us, because being aware of that should make us more careful about claiming too much for ourselves. Remember all of the Socratic ironies that I've talked about, all the people that Socrates met thought they had all these answers for things. Catholics are famous for that. (laughs) Um, We have all, you know, and you don't have to be Catholic for that to be true, um, but it's in our human nature to take pride in our knowledge and assert certain things and believe that we know them. The, The whole Socratic enterprise was to show the foolishness of that. There's so much we don't know. So um, irony, in some ways, conduces to humility. It helps move us in that direction because we're made aware that very often people are blind to the things they don't,
2: they without knowing it. Um, then the
1: next uh, quote is that's an irony in purgatory. No, 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 no. So irony is the mode in the Inferno. Wonder. Remember I suggested it is the mode of um, the purgatorio. The souls are, are answering justice now, but with mercy. The, the souls in the inferno get what they wanted. They get justice, and they're stuck in it. The souls in purgatory want justice, um, but know that they can't get it on their own, and so they they'd seek mercy from God. So the whole movement of purgatory is to try to, open themselves to their sins, to accept the punishments, the sufferings, and it's in this spirit of openness that they're presented with all these things that are wonderful. I mean it's like they're beginning to live again. There's no wonder in in the inferno. People are blind. They've lost the good of the intellect. In Purgatorio, their minds are being opened again. They're being presented with wonders constantly. The, The great wonder, I suggested, was the wonder when Stasius emerges Remember the, the mountain shakes, everybody sings, Dante's in wonder, because wonder means asking questions about the things. we Wondering means wondering what's going on, asking questions. Aristotle said the natural condition of man should be wonder. We're supposed to be asking what are the first causes of the causes of things that we don't understand. Children do it all the time. We get smart and then get stupid, because we think we have all the answers. That's true. We're we're supposed to continue growing all of our life. How can we without wonder? We're supposed to be living in a state of wonder. God, makes me think I'm not going to get going. We get jaded as we get older, sadly. I mean, we are afraid to be childlike again. So wonder is the mode of life in the Purgatorio. The mode of living in um, the Paradiso is blessedness. There's not even a wonder anymore because remember, all the things now are answered. They're in the presence of God, so they live in a in a state of constant blessedness and joy and peace. They're in harmony with God. Piccarda says, um, "In in His will is my will, is my peace." Um, so in in the. Perdiso in, the, in Inferno, the sins are um, cemented; they're fixed; they're, they're they're eternally there. The people will they they refuse. Remember, Picarda, if if the King of the Universe were only our friend, she's blaming God for what happened. Um, so, Francesca, Francesca, and remember the, in the lustful. Um, um, None of the um, individuals in the Inferno can see their sins. They've lost the good of the intellect. In the Purgatory, they have and their eyes are opening and they're moving forward. In the Paradiso, the sins have been wiped away. They are, and remember Dante comes through the river of Lethe and the know, So he, his memory of his sins were washed away, I've got to have a talk with Father.
0: <laughs> no, I really
1: do. I really do want, I want to invite him to dinner because he says when we get to heaven, everything's going to be exposed. I don't think that's going to happen. I think when you get to heaven, you're in beatitude. If, if on the way there in purgatory, you know this will all be taken care of. But here in the Divine Comedy, Dante goes through the river of Lethe, and the memory of sins is taken away, and it's humiliating. But I mean, I, I don't see a social audience, you know, aware of him and in feeling that, I mean, everybody, I think, is going to feel ashamed when they have to have that reckoning. But. And then he goes through the river of Lethe, and all of his good deeds are restored. So, when the soul enters the imperium, go, the soul goes to God, he goes in a state of having been forgiven. The sins are wiped away. So there's no memory of sins, there's no guilt, the soul is in joy. Um, and we, we got some glimpse of what that's going to mean in the very opening canto of the Paradiso, because remember Dante describes that experience of being transhumanized. He and Beatrice mm-hmm. rise like faster than light. So when we go into the Paradiso, Dante is introducing us to a new sense of time and space. Time and space as we know it, is is um, is not what governs here. Everything that he shows us, we have to understand is taking place in a different kind of time and space from the time and spaces we experience on Earth. Even though he's still in the heavens, he's been transed, humanized. Something's happened to him. So, that's where we were. Um, <clears throat> the scheme of the heavens, just very quickly, remember that in the Ptolemaic scheme, um, the Ptolemaic view of the universe, which was consistent with the, um, the, uh, the pagan view of the Olympian gods, um, they were pretty much the same. Everything from the moon down to the earth was called the sublunary sphere. It was a sphere of death and decay, of mutability all things change. This is the world, the sphere of mutability. It was one of the great renaissance themes, mutability. (laughs) Everything changes, and because everything changes and everything's in flux, you can't know it, because you no longer think, or you no sooner think you have a grasp of something than it's different. It's Heraclitus in his river, if you remember that because the river's constantly changing, you can't know a thing. So this is the world of change and flux that can't be known. And everything beyond the moon is called the, um, the heavens, and these things can be known because they're eternal, they're permanent. That's why they're identified with the gods. It's the homes of the gods. And everybody understood that these planets, exerted some influence on humans here. We still do today. We believe we're affected by the planets. That was no less true for Homer, because you saw the gods are always interacting in the Homeric world, in the early, in the Odyssey. So this is the, the world of, of immutability. Immutability. Unchanging, eternal, where the gods are. Um, the interesting thing is when the Copernican revolution takes place what sets the Renaissance really into motion, it's, it's that more than anything else that sits. Um, throws everything into doubt because once, the, once Copernicus reveals his theory everybody begins to believe that they were wrong about everything. So the church gets doubted. It's a period of great skepticism and doubt. If the, if, the church and if the church's theology was based on this kind of a worldview and that worldview is wrong, then the church is wrong. So it was a time of great religious philosophic upheaval. It's the beginning of the modern world as we know it. When the Copernican view replaces the Ptolemaic view, You all know that the sun is at the center of the universe and the planets go around it. Well, one of the unforeseen consequences of that change is that once the Earth takes its place among the planets, it takes its place among eternal, constant things, so human beings can now be known. So we can have a scientific knowledge of man in a way that wasn't possible before because when he was here on Earth, he was a part of a world of flux, death, decay. So the Copernican revolution <coughs> radically changed our whole way of looking at the universe and man himself. Now, interesting thing, in the ancient world it was believed under the Ptolemaic scheme that man couldn't be known because he was a part of this world of flux. It was only the eternal things that could be known, that were constant fixed. Well, look at the poets. The poets are the ones who know man, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. They're the ones who can see some significance to what, to man's predicament here on Earth. So we've talked about that, you know, what we learned about our human nature from the Iliad and the Odyssey about marriage and the Odyssey about the city and the Aeneid. I mean, that's what we did together in our work. So the poets are the ones who've had this special vision all along. Um, but this is the scheme. Okay. Um, and let me just let me take a minute here before I turn this board. In the first seven cantos, or first eight cantos. What we're dealing with are the natural virtues: um, fortitude, let's see, um, fortitude, justice, and temperance, and the last one is prudence. But Dante does something different with that. Fortitude is the, what Father talked about in the homily this morning, persevering, holding on when things get tough, we don't give up. Uh, It was the core of Father's homily on marriages today. Justice is giving what's due, and we've seen right along that we can't give what's due without ordering our own souls, learning to be good ourselves so that we can bring what's due to another, temperance is self-restraint, particularly with respect to worldly things, food, drink, sex. And prudence is knowing, it's the practical virtue of knowing the best thing to do under certain circumstances because the world keeps presenting different circumstances to us. Prudence means knowing how to do it, the best way of doing it, um, the most that we can get out of it, it's the practical virtue what Dante's exploring in the first several planets are those virtues because, (coughs) and this is going to take me to the important point that I'll come to. Let me just touch on it here. Um, What we see in the first um, four planets, particularly the first three, the Sun will be the, the sphere of prudence, but something happens here and I'll get to it in a minute. What we see here in each of these first three heavens it is one of the natural virtues in a defective state. So even though the souls are in heaven, they were imperfect in that virtue. So in the level of the moon, we, he, will, he will meet souls who were deficient in fortitude. Picarda and Constance gave in on them. They were nuns, they entered the convent, but they broke their vows. In Mercury, um, he will meet Justinian, who had a false view of Christ. In Romeo, whose whose motives were questionable in what he did. We'll look at those in a minute. In Venus, he will deal with with the virtue of temperance. Um, And we'll see the deficiencies there. So what we see is the souls are in heaven, but they were imperfect in the virtues that they achieved. Okay, So... Keep in mind the continuity between the inferno and purgatorio and paradiso. And that takes me to the point I want to get to now. Let me get to this. Does this mean do the um, let's see, the moon spots. This is um, the moon spots justice, and temperance, yeah, so we've got. Okay. Let me make one of these sweeping statements now that it it seems to me this is one of the most important things that we can get out of the Divine Comedy and certainly the Paradiso, so let me try to get this clear. Um, I'm going to read some passages from the Paradiso that are uh, concrete expressions of this, but let me let me try to make this clear in my opinion. If you look at the epic tradition, this is what we see. This is really important, because we live in a novel world. Our world is the world of the novel, not the epic. Homer, the, you all remember, the Trojan War took place around 1200 more. Homer writes around 750, 800, somewhere in there. Virgil writes in the first century. Dante writes in 1300. What does that tell you? 800 years pass before we get a major reworking of Homer. 1300 years, 1400 years pass before we get another reworking of Virgil. Virgil's Dante's guide, yeah? What we've learned about the epic, for those of you who've been here from the beginning, is the epic is always encyclopedic, it's cosmic, it gives us a cosmic worldview. Homer was called the teacher of the Greeks, the educator of the Greeks, because there was nothing in the Homeric world, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, that, that wasn't instructing, it's, it's, remember, they weren't, they, there, were, there were no texts then, this was an oral tradition, it was sung. So there was nothing his listeners didn't hear. <clears throat> there wasn't any aspect of life that wasn't covered. How to cook, how to go to war, what to do in a marriage. You know. <clears throat> the epics have always been encyclopedic. They, they relate man to a larger cosmos. They teach him the way of things, how to get, a, get about in the world. That whole effort was carried forward, as you know, in the Aeneid, in Virgil. Virgil takes it, but um, he moves from the individual, Achilles, and the marriage, Odysseus, into the city, Rome, because the Aeneid is about the founding of Rome, so the field of the epic vision is enlarging, yeah? And we saw that that all of the other cities were dying in the the, Aeneid. There's something wrong with the earthly cities. There was something special. The gods were behind this whole movement to prepare for the founding of Rome. That this extraordinary thing came into being, and this is just before Christ comes into the world, and Rome will become the center of Christendom. Um, and then this gets forward, carried forward, thirteen hundred years for Dante. And you know from reading Dante how encyclopedic this is. Um, and it, if you're if you're into the Paradiso, as I'm assuming you are, you know that he's covering matters of physics, moon spots, density and rarity. I mean, there isn't any aspect of human knowledge that Dante doesn't touch on. <coughs> now, why is this important? The opening lines, the opening lines of the Paradiso. are these. The glory of the one who moves all things, penetrates all the universe, reflecting in one part more and in another less. I have been in his brightest shining heaven and seen such things that no man once returned from there as wit or skill to tell about. For when our intellect draws near its goal and fathoms to the depths of its desire, the memory is powerless to follow if we had been in the presence of God and saw God and had to return to the earth, is there any way our memory could encompass that? If God is infinite, there's no way. There's no way for the memory. How could Dante find the words to it? it's, I hope you all see this, that part of what he's struggling against, struggling with, <coughs> is that he had this whole journey, it, ultimately, it ended ultimately in the vision of God and Christ, in his dual nature, that's how it ends, he has to come back and write that whole thing out. And this is what we have, and all along he's been struggling in memory to be faithful to what he saw. But still as much of heaven's holy realm as I could store and treasure in my mind shall now become the subject of my song. Because he's entered supernatural spaces, we're in a different time space now, so he's gonna have to struggle with his memory. He even warns us. He says, be careful those of you who are going to follow me now, because right now I'm entering into a dangerous... This is going to require real strength of faith. The dangers are so great. But here's the... Here's the I'm going to read some more passages in a minute. Here's the, the thing I want to, to make clear. This is what's extraordinary. He will make clear in a minute that God is in the Imperium, this is where God is present, in Heaven. God, what he will go on to say is, God will impart something of Himself in creation. He he gave it to the prima mobile, the prima mobile is the crystalline sphere outside the universe, it's transparent. It's called the first mover. God sets that first mover into motion, you can't see it. Sets it into motion and what, what he gives to his creation moves through the prima mobile. It moves. it's the first mover. It moves God into the, the stars. And um, um, what God offers the universe is dispersed in stars. and then from the stars, it, it's imparted to every one of the planets, each in his own way. So what Dante is showing is that there's this great diversity, this great variety to creation but God is present in it everywhere. That's the most important thing to see. Now, now, hold on to this just for a second. Let me repeat this. God creates the world. He imparts something of himself. This logos, I gave you this printout. Remember, St. Thomas said, everything, everything in nature has an appetite. He called that love, the appetite for good. A sunflower, a wolf, a porpoise, a human being, it doesn't matter. Everything has an appetite. When the sun moves across the sky the sunflower follows it. Flowers move towards the sun. If if anybody gardens, you know that. Everything in nature is defined in terms of an appetite. The, The scientific world has reduced that to forces, whatever that means. St. Thomas would have said an appetite, an appetite for the good, and he said in that, in that handout, you all got that handout on the logos, right? And you all read it, I, good parishioners, right?
0: Long time ago.
1: What was a week? I gave it to you a week ago. Um, <laughs> Doug, write a note to Jared. Um, I want to order twenty dunce- Cats. <laughs> um. Where am I? Lost my mind again. There's an appetite to everything. To cre- Here, listen. This is so. And he said, the 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 difference between humans and the rest of creation is humans have been given reason. I gave you this when we talked about the human will. Remember. If this is the human soul, the human soul has two basic reason and the appetitive faculty, the appetite. The appetites can take two forms. It's towards physical things of the world and nobler things like truth, honor, and justice, an appetite for the good, beauty. Thomas said, humans have the power of reason And he distinguished two kinds of appetites, towards physical things and the noble things. He called the the appetites the sensitive appetite, it's sensitive (coughs) to physical things, and the intellective appetite. Remember this the intellective appetite. The sensitive appetite, the intellective appetite. The sensitive appetite is towards physical things. The intellective appetite is the appetite towards the good as it's apprehended. Is that clear? The sensitive appetite is when we see a piece of cake and we want to eat. You, you know the struggle. We, we're supposed to control our eating, our habits are lusts or desires I and mean, all the physical things that present such a danger to us. The, but the intellective appetite is the appetite towards the good as it's apprehended because it's rooted in the intellect. We call the intellective appetite the will. God gave us free will and there can be no free will if there's no reason the two are absolutely inseparable. Reason implies a will, that we can make choices. And the and the existence of free will implies reason. We can deliberate on the choices that we make, right? If you destroy the <coughs> notion of free will, and the modern world has, the Protestant world denies it, largely. Freud says it doesn't exist. It, it absolutely undermines our nature. So, um, Humans are distinct, different from everything else in creation because it has an intellect and a will, a free will. Everything else in nature has an appetite in it. Animals have a sensitive appetite. They can move towards things. Okay, Um, And plants have an appetite. They move towards the good. A plant wants water, a plant wants sunlight. So he calls that appetite. The, another word for appetite is love. If, if the creator of all things was love itself, then he invested everything he created with love. So Thomas would say, all things in, all things in the universe are moved by love. Think about how different that is from our worldview. But that means all of these other things move towards the good out of necessity. <coughs> they have to, they have no free will. Can a tree, can a tree choose to be a bed? Can it choose to be a flower? No, it can't. Same you know, same thing with an animal. They don't have reason, they don't have free will. So Thomas said that um, all things all things are moved by an apprehensive power, apprehend the rational power in man, yeah, we can apprehend things, we grasp them, we can make choices. But he said in these things that are moved by necessity, they're moved by apprehensive power not in themselves, because they don't have reason, but in the God who made them. So that all things have signs of the apprehensive power of their creator their order, their purposefulness. A flower moves towards the sun. That's an indication of, of the apprehensive power in that flower. We call that logos. The logos is present everywhere in creation. Is that clear? Let me stop for a minute if it's not. if Is that clear? I've been saying from the beginning, right from you know, the Greek world, the logos is present everywhere. There, there is this intelligibility and order and purposefulness to everything in creation. Everything. If God made it, he's there. Yeah, it's present. Now here's the point I want to make. The epics have always been encyclopedic. They've they all shown us that there is this logo, this purposefulness. The gods are everywhere. They were there in the Homeric world. They were there in the Virgilian world. They're here in Dante's world, okay? God is everywhere. Remember what I just showed you? In this scheme of the planets, Dante will make clear, I'm going to read some of the passages. Here's God in the Imperium, and this is the Primum mobile. The first mover. He imparts something of himself to this in creation. The first mover sets everything else in motion. Now, a couple of things to say about this. According to Plato, who saw this really clearly, and this notion was adapted in the Renaissance, it was one of the great things, it produced this um, music of the spheres. In Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, it's gonna come into play with Portia. The music of the spheres. Every heaven had its own sound, its own angelic order. It was governed by an angelic order, invisible. So there's a visible planet, an invisible order of angels guarding, overseeing it. The movement of these spheres produced this harmony. You can't hear it with your ears. It was only available by intellection, by the mind grasping it, because it's a spiritual thing. But anybody hearing that would experience God's peace, his harmony. In Shakespeare's play, Pericles, he's the only person that I know of in all of literature who actually hears the music of the spheres. Paul probably did, Dante probably did, because they visited the, they're supposed to assume this. When this Pericles hears it, he he has this tormented search for his daughter Marina in the, the play Pericles, suffers he goes from one suffering to another, to another, to another, to another, and finally at the end he has this experience of the music of the spheres and he rests. He sleeps in peace. It's an extraordinary moment. To hear the music of the spheres is to be brought into God's poetry if I can put it that way, the the harmony of poetry, that's the source of all poetry. The music of the spheres. Um, God is present in every one of these things. The challenge I put to you last week was can you find Christ? What Dante's going to make clear is that there is nothing in existence that doesn't show Christ, for the reason that the name is there here. And let me try to make this clear by a kind of contrast. Dante did this in 1300. It was 800 years from the time of Homer before we got another poet capable of showing a cosmic world order. Yeah, 1,300 years before we could get another one after Virgil. Virgil's Dante's Guide. That's not an accident. We're, we're in, what what year are we in? Sixteen. 2016,
2: 2016
1: yeah. So, 700 years. In 700 years, we have not had an epic poet. I think Melville gets close, and I think Faulkner gets close. But there's nothing encyclopedic in anybody's work, and here's here's what I want to say. If Dante were alive today, this is my contention, if Dante were alive today with his genius and St. Thomas behind him, he would find some way of taking Heisenberg and Borg and Planck and all the modern physicists and show Um, the first causes that take that form in their theories. And we would have another epic. But we don't. There's no Catholic who has that vision who has grasped not only the humanities, all that goes on in the humanities, but everything goes on in the natural sciences as well. Is that clear? I really want to be clear. Another way of looking at it is this. There's two sets of causes according to Christianity. We live in a world of secondary causes. We live in a contingent world, right? We, do, we put up a contingent. Suzanne and I make a, con- a contingent account. If our washer goes out or something, we want to have money there to... We're trying to... Um, what's the word? responsibility for accidents that we can't predict, right? We live in a contingent world. We don't know what's going to happen. So all of us live in a, in a contingent world, a world in flux, back in that sublunary world, right? We're in a world of flux, constant change, contingencies. There are secondary causes. Who's the first cause? God. God is the first cause of the universe if he is even though he created a world of secondary causes in order to protect the freedom he gave things particularly man <clears throat> otherwise he would be a, a mechanical god he'd be like a puppet master calvin believed that things were predetermined predestined that's a frightening view to me if man's free if man's predestined he has no responsibility for what he does i mean if is Predetermined determined already. Um, in order to protect the free will that he gave man, we live in a world of secondary causes. There's a contingency of freedom. Think, there's lots that's determined or we wouldn't have the sciences, right? But there's a large measure of freedom in our world. We have an autonomy. Trees don't have, animals don't have, things like that. Okay? So he's the first God. we live in a secondary cause. What Dante's doing is showing in the Paradiso that there is nothing in creation that doesn't bear the causes of God, that he is involved in everything. He will show that in moon spots. He will show carta, injustice in, at the level of uh, Venus. God is everywhere, present at work. And he's present at work with humans in a way that protects their free will. He does not come in and impose his will he works with humans. So that what we're going to be seeing in the Paradiso is God present. Beatrice is going to be showing how God is present. Not just as a person, the image of Christ, because he will catch glimpses of Christ as he goes up the heavens, but in the, he- the physical universe itself. He is the creator, he's the maker, he's present at work. And let me stop, is that clear? That's such an obvious thing. And, and to go back to what I was saying, we you know, we live we, we've got a modern set of physics operating in our world with, I mean the only ones, I don't know who's new because I'm not current, but Heisenberg and Borg and the others have, the, the 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 challenge facing an epic poet in our day, like Dante, would be to take <laughs> these modern physics theories and show how they're related to a first cause, because that's that's what hold on, that's what Dante's doing here, in the Paradiso and all these things. If when we get to it, we're going to see all of these things are revealing God. So we're learning to see that God is everywhere, most of all where we don't think He is, because in the modern world He isn't. He isn't there. Done. Yeah. I think there's
0: there's lots of books out there that are trying to integrate this with uh, you modern it, yeah. physics. Omerchu yeah. uh, well, has a book called Quantum Theology. Uh, there's a guy, uh, priest, Cletus Russell, who wrote Jesus in the New uh, Universe story. Yeah. Uh, but they're not widespread,
1: uh, yeah to yeah.
0: You know, masses of people. Yeah. Uh, there's nobody that's really put together an epic like, like yeah. he did in Divine yeah. Comedy. But yeah. This, uh, there's a number of books out there that uh, uh, are trying to, to do this to take modern physics, what we know about the uh, cosmos, and trying to integrate yep. the whole. Theology. I asked
1: you if you'd put a list together. I'd really be grateful if you would do that because I'd like to, and I'd like to make it available to the class for people yep. who like to do but it. But these
0: these are not you know widely known books. Maybe they're yep. widely known in certain yep. circles, yep. but yep. not to the general population. <coughs> yep. In fact, if Dante wrote something like that, <laughs> would it be widely known in today's uh, world? Because we're so secular and so, you know. Um, See, we, you know, when he was writing, you know, the church was, you know, basically the church's state. Weren't they still pretty much uh, integrated? They hadn't completely separated yet. Uh, everybody in, in, in Europe was was Catholic. There wasn't even a Protestant. Not everybody. Re- I mean, we didn't
1: have, there were lots of non-believers, but, well, and there were lots of Islamic people. But
0: No, I'm talking about in terms of where he was in, in Italy. There, there weren't too many uh, non-Catholics there.
1: Yeah. The, um, the Part of the meaning of this, as I'm trying to present it, is to suggest this, that um, there would have been... Um, books like the ones that you're describing in Dante's time Mm -hmm. and um, but there's a difference between works that are presenting a thesis and a narrative a story Mm -hmm. because remember the epic is not a piece of philosophy, it's not a thesis, it's it's a story, it's like a novel Mm -hmm. and that's why why I'm trying to underline this to make clear how rare the epic is and how important it is, it always gives us a comic view it's, there's a difference between putting forward a thesis when you're talking about something in, in terms of ideas and a narrative which is not about something, it's an actual experience itself. Remember I've been, I've been saying, it's like the Eucharist in that way. <coughs> Stories take us back to the world. Poetry gives us knowledge by experience, not by ideas. That's one of the reasons I've been pressing this, That. That we get much clo- we get back to actual experiences, much closer to actual experiences, and away from theory, when we get into a story, and that's a kind of knowledge that's not very popular in our world, particularly in our world today, because it's so practical, so scientific oriented. That and part part of me is what I'm saying is I I I wish, it's a it's a deep wish. What what I think about what's going on in the schools today and what the kind of indoctrination that's going on, the, the theories that are being inflicted on kids, there's nothing that's going to take them back to nature. We live in a world of ideas. If we don't get back to nature, kids are going to suffer from it, the next generation. My, my lament here is, how long will it be before an epic poet will step forward and take these modern theories and take them back to a first cause in a way at a level of experience so that we can enter a story and learn from it the way we do with Dante. That's the point I'm trying to make here, okay. as as a way of underscoring the, the real value of what we have in the Divine Comedy. How special it is.
2: No, but I think what Don's saying is that uh, you know when you get um, quantum physics coming into this picture, and you get the for lack of a better word, medieval view of reality from Dante on. From Saint Thomas and Aristotle, Mm -hmm. and and then they put quantum physics in it. It seems like a contradiction, and so I think it. So what? So when people start reacting to, well, I I was told this, but reality is that, and then there's kind of a loss of faith that I was I was taught something that is no no. According to my understanding now, is not wasn't. True back then, it's yeah. a world view. Right. I think you're right on about the world view, but it, the world view is in a in a period like what Don's saying in a, is in a in a perma, profound tram, change or evolution. Yeah, and it's like what I like about well, what you're saying is it has to be synthesized by somebody, but who can do that? Yeah, I mean that's my lament and my hope.
1: I hope I'm being clear here. I hope I'm not. What i what I'm suggesting is. Uh, this, the time distance between these suggests how hard it is. That what we need right now is somebody who does not go back to a medieval worldview. That's not what, that a modern. That, one of my griefs sometimes is sometimes I look at modern Catholic art and grieve. I mean we don't we don't want an art that keep, the Greek Orthodox Church like the one that I was raised in still is in Byzantine art. You can't walk into a Greek Orthodox church and not find yourself in the 14th century. I don't think the church is. The church has not moved forward believing that grace is operating in the world and, and expressive in art. It's still in the past. I, I want, I, I hope, that one day somebody will come forward who's not going back to a medieval view, who stands in the modern world doing what Dante did in his, that he will take modern physics and relate it to a first cause, who, who has the the genius of intellect, who can take All of the principles of modern quantum physics and every other, whatever the modern forms are, but have a a mind so capable that he can do a dungeon, he can relate them to a third cause and show that behind all of this great diversity of things is a unity and do it in a story. Who's capable of doing that? What I'm suggesting is before we leave this world of epic, this is how hard the epic task is. What Dante's doing is a really <coughs> extraordinary thing, and it's more extraordinary than the *Purgatorio* because it's so intellectual. Moon spots, rarity, and density. Are you kidding?
2: Um, I thought the word with the uh, transhumanization, or what was the word there? No, yeah, transhumanize. Well, that, that's a hell of a word. I mean, it is. I mean, for a medieval,
1: I mean, I don't know if that Did you not hear, Father, you don't swear in this class.
2: No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, thought hell, I thought hell of a word was a, was a good phrase. Sorry. I'm kidding. Well, I, but I think that just, I got my fourth now, but. Uh, but just how uh, transhumanization is, that's a wonderful word. Yeah, it is. And I think, I think of the transformation, I mean, transfiguration so there's a there's in, in our mystical traditions of understanding the gospels it's right there yes
1: yes yes, yes. <coughs> okay let me go on unless there's other questions I have or one question. yeah
0: and this may be um the epic was over all those years and and it's very difficult to you know as you were just explaining to have an epic now it, do you think that Pope Francis, and you were talking about going back in art and, and the medieval thought, do you think Pope Francis recommended this reading for, um, you know, because there is nothing else, and it does bring back to a, to a first cause?
2: It's
1: hard to second guess, him, but I well, would say yeah. that that, you know, but that's pretty much I, I said on Monday night's class, there's this canto in here when um, it's on our next set of reading. But when in, it's ten or eleven, canto ten or eleven huh? Yeah, um, well, it's on page four fifty-five. Saint Thomas is um, praising Saint Francis. We, we won't get there until next no. week, but he says. Um, <coughs> At the bottom of 455, bereft of her first spouse, despised, ignored, she waited 1100 years and more, living without a lover till he came. That's a very erotic, when you get there, if you haven't read it already, you'll see, it's a very erotic story of Saint Francis and his lover, his beloved. I don't want to give it away because I hate giving away things. You all have got to read this. Um, It's a story of Saint Francis and his lover but the terms of it, it are that it took 1,100 years for the bereft of her first spouse, despised, ignored, she waited 1,100 years and more, living without a lover, she, I'm not going to give who that she, she had to wait, no, i the church had to wait 1,100 years to find a lover consonant with the goodness that was in her nature. And that's, I mean, we, we've, you've seen this from the notes I've given you that the, we, and in the, at the end of the Purgatorio with the image of the, the, the giant and the whore of Babel, you know, the, the Pope, that, um, that the church had become corrupt because of its, engage, its it's too incestuous relationship with the world. And Dante's treatment of St. Francis here is, is that it, it took 1100 years for somebody to embrace poverty. And we think about how, how, how the commercial regime, what are the great idols? We are in the desert. My picture of it, we, we are the Jews in the desert worshiping idols. And the, and the idols of America are wealth and comfort and security. They dominate the American psyche. I want everything comfortable. I, I, want, I, don't want, I want everything secure. Strap my kids in seatbelts and car seats, and they will be safe have insurance policies surround us to protect us against any any contingency. And we have locked ourselves in mechanical prisons. That's our hell, that's our inferno. Dante's saying of the commercial regime, it took 1100 years before somebody would embrace poverty. So I suspect, this is me, I suspect because of what we're watching Francis do, yeah. for right from the beginning, that he's partly wanting to open up catechism to to learn our faith and experience it not just have ideas in our head because that's not, it's not the same to actually experience hell, sin, grace, learn. Um, um, but also to reaffirm, the, to help people understand the struggle that the church has gone through where she's arrived and the, and the temptation she constantly faces. And for for Dante, for Francis, for Dominic, you know, it's going to fill up the center. The the answer isn't breaking off and starting a new church. There is no church. Christ is the founder of this church. The answer is reform the church. Reform ourselves. Change ourselves. Learn to look at our sins. Renounce the world. Get better, you know. Enter into the spiritual world that, that is the basis of this epic. It's doing what... Father bases his homilies on all the time. So let me stop because I well, I'm gonna you. leave that to Father. But did you have did you have another seat? No, but thank you because okay. that helped a
0: lot.
1: <laughs> okay, let's I've got a sorry, I want to do this quickly because we're I have to watch our time. Um, I wanna just quickly take us through the moon spots. Let me just set this out because it, it's it I think reading it it's a l- little bit harder to understand than if I just set it out. When Dante enters the moon, you remember that he's stunned because on Earth bodies can't enter bodies. <coughs> right? On page three ninety eight <coughs> he begins to enter the moon. He's a body. Bodies can't enter bodies. They They're exclusive by nature. 398, if I was a body on earth, we cannot think in terms of solid form without a solid, as we must hear, since body enters body. Then so much more should longing burn in us to see that being in whom we can behold the union of God's nature with our own. Christ entered our nature. So behind everything going on in nature is this principle of God himself entering it. Um, Now, Dante will ask this question in 399, how do we account for the moon spots? The scientists in his day tried to account for it by a theory of rarity and density. Let me see if I can be clear. I'm not a (laughs) physicist, but... um, And Dante's saying they're mistaken. These are the scientists doing what scientists do. They're mistaken. And it's obvious that they're wrong for a couple of reasons. One is, if there was an eclipse and the, 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 um, the moon spots were explained in terms of the density or rarity, when the sun comes behind, or, or when the moon comes in front of the sun, you would expect that, that the, the light would show in different forms, but it doesn't. There's nothing transparent to the moon. And he said, you can prove it another way as well. If you took three sets of lights, two sets of light like this and one farther back and reflected them, you'd see that even though one is set farther back, they still give off the same intensity of light. And he's making that argument to show this, that if if the rarity and density of the moon explained the moon spots, if something were rarer um, and light were projected at it, the fact that it was pushed back because it was rare, it didn't get thick until farther back. It would show a different kind of light, but it doesn't do that. So, for a number of reasons, the moon spots cannot be explained by a principle of rarity or density. Um, if something's farther back, it um, it would dim the light, or but it, he says that doesn't that doesn't happen, and if the if there was an eclipse, you'd see light shining through it, and that doesn't happen. What he goes on to say is this theory that, that I just explained that each thing in creation has its own faculties, its own properties, and God gives his what he brings into being when he creates the universe, he gives is being to all of this and it gets dispersed so that each thing has its own nature. And it is ultimately explained by its form. And the ultimate form giver is Christ. And that that in itself would take a class and I can't do it, but let me put it simply this. Does anything have any meaning if it's formless? I hope it's clear that it's not. If it's formless, it's chaotic. It's, it's unintelligible. To, to, to be intelligible means there has to be some form to it, something that carries the intelligibility, make, gives it form. Anything that's formless can't mean. It's without meaning. It, it's chaotic. Um, who's the source of creation? Christ. He's the one who gave form to everything. He's the ultimate form giver. Dante's going to be making that clear again and again, that Christ is behind everything. He's the one giving form to everything. He, he's the one who made it possible. So we have here in the moon spots already an illustration of the way in which God imparts life to things, sustains them. Everything's sustained because the He's the ultimate source of being, the being of things. Have their source in him, the being of things, the life in them. Have their source in him. He is being itself. He's the source of all life. He sustains them. When you
0: say source of creation is Christ,
1: do you mean God, or do you really mean that? God, but he was the means. In, in John, where it says in the, be- in the beginning, there was a word in- with, with, with the word. Without form. and I mean, it, You've got Genesis in one, and then you've got John, in the opening of John, where he talks about the word in the beginning, and the word was the means of creation. He was the means by which the Father made everything. Um, Interesting, just a side note here on the Trinity. The the Son is the form of the Father. He's the image of God the Father. (laughs) This is getting... God the Father conceives of himself the way we do. When we, we have a conception of something, right? We're made in his image. Um, so we can conceive of ourselves, But we're, we're creatures, we're not God. When God conceived of himself, when he thought of himself, when he, when he reflected on himself, the image of that reflection is the Son begotten. That's why he's co-eternal and not made. He's not made. He's begotten. That's why he's one with the Father, in being. The love between the two of them is the Spirit. So the Son and the Spirit are both persons because they're God. That's why it's such a, a tremendous mystery to the rest of the, why the Islamic think this is absurd that, that Allah was alone to think that Allah could be with anybody. This is so well worked out in Christianity. The Son is the image of the Father, the idea and his concept of Himself. It can't be anything other than a person because God Himself is personhood. It doesn't give rise to something else. Creation was made. It's a thing apart. So, because we're made in his image, as human beings, all of us have a Trinitarian structure to our nature. All of us. So, now we go back. What did I say? So, the ultimate form giver is Christ. He's the means by which all of these things were brought. So, he's present everywhere. Remember, this course began to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see Him. The whole purpose of this class was to see, from the beginning, I've been trying to bring works that, that either the early pagan epics, the Perusia, par- the that hint of Christ, the second coming, or the, ep- or the lyric poems like the Windhover, or all these poems that are poets discovering Christ somewhere. Um, so we find that the explanation for the moon spots is not their um, density or rarity, but it's, it, it's, it's an example, again, of the way in which God imparted something of himself to his creation. He sustains it. That um, things are explained by their form, the properties they have. And the ultimate source of that is Christ. He's the one who made them. In the next Cantos, he meets Picarda and Constant. Um, and Picarda, you remember, um, um, and Constance both broke their vows. Uh-huh. So they are instances of a, of a deficiency in fortitude. They're still in heaven. They're perfectly happy.
0: But they were
2: forced, right? Right. It's not like they, they did it right. their own free will, right? So. Yes,
1: right. In fact, Dante asks that question. Right. He says, um... That's why they're in heaven, but,
2: but, but
1: why are they not higher? Here, let, okay, let me here. Uh, let's look. <coughs> um... <clears throat> on 405, Dante asks why they're here. Wait, by the way, is it clear why they are there? For, in, case, well, in case it's not. Picard makes clear that everybody's with God. Equally happy. E- no, equally in paradise. But everyone is, is different in brilliance of goodness according to their merit and the graces that they were given in their life. So she's come here to meet Dante on the moon because that's an expression of the degree of beatitude she possesses. And we'll see as we go up, there are other people who, who, who merit greater so they will be brighter. St. Thomas will be brighter. We'll see it as we go up. But she says all of us are here equally. She's only come here to prepare Dante because to go to God immediately Is impossible he has to get accustomed to the brilliance so they are preparing by the way isn't that isn't that an example of the spiritual life look back at our lives all of you who are in this class look back at your life 20 years ago are you gonna say that 20 years ago or now that you're in the same state a spiritual state that you were 20 years ago that there hasn't been a change in the way that you view things or love or even struggle with your love or your own sins I'm gonna say even if you've got sins I'm, I think I may be the oldest, pretty much the oldest, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I mean my, I, I get so distressed at my sins, and I'm not young anymore, <clears throat> but I can't believe I'm not, I'm, there's, I'm not close to the person I was 20 years ago, even though I'm the same person, that all of us are gradually being trans, trans, are the that Tom loves, transhumanized, that all of us are being, hopefully, transformed by grace, that we're becoming better. Otherwise, why are we here? So, um, um, she, Dante says, why are you here? She explains it to him, and on page 405, she says, our stations which appear so lowly here has been assigned because we failed our vows to some degree and gave less than we pledged. But down, but tell me, all you souls so happy here, do you yearn for a higher post in heaven to see more, to become more loved by him? So gently smiled as did the other shades, then came her words, so full of happiness she seemed to glow with her first fire. There's nothing that doesn't take on a glow here. Um, because they're, they're meeting, they're encountering love itself. Um, on page 406, All right. God bless. Four six. If we desire to be higher up, then our desires would not be in accord with His will, who assigns us to this fear. <coughs> Think carefully what love is, and you'll see such discord has no place within our rounds. Um, quickly turn to five before. Yeah, turn to page thirty, canto five. Page thirty, quick. Page thirty. Page thirty. No, thirty. 30. 30. Age 30. 30. thirty. Francisca, canto five in the Inferno. Oh, no. Remember, Dante. Pa- remember, Dante passes out. Remember, <laughs> Francisca is very beautiful, very <laughs> gracious. She's this beautiful woman, um, and her her words seem so endearing. He wants to know why they're there. She and Powell are together. Remember, they committed adultery when they were reading when they were reading poetry. Um, O oh, living creature, gracious and so kind, who makes your way here through this dingy air to visit us who stain the world with blood, if we could claim as friend the king of kings, we would beseech him that he grant you peace. You who show pity for our atrocious plight. She's blaming God. If God were only a friend of us, we wouldn't be here. She's feeling sorry for herself. She's blaming him. Very tenderly, but still doing it. Yes. Yeah. If we could claim as friend the king, God is not a friend to us, or we wouldn't be here. Remember, everybody in hell has lost the good of the intellect. They, don't, they want to see the way they want to see. Picarda, if we desire to be higher up and our desires would not be in accord with his will. Go down. The order of our rank from height to height throughout the realm is pleasing to the realm as to that king who wills us to his will. In his will is our Peace. Now Dante will say on page 409, a couple of stanzas down, he's troubled because of, um, of the question you just raised. He's saying, saying the troubled, um, because he learns from friend, or a Picarda or Picarta that she and Constance had given their vows and that they were forced out by men to marry. Um, If then I stood there mute, drawn equally by two doubts, I merit neither blame nor praise the victim of necessity. I did not speak. Um, She said, I see how you are torn between your two desires, so that your eagerness is choking. Um, She goes on on page 410, um, she says, Not the most godlike of the seraphim, not Moses, Samuel, whichever John you choose, I tell you, not marry yourself, has been assigned to any other heaven than that of these shades you have seen here. They all come from heaven. And each one's bliss is equally eternal, all lend their beauty to the highest sphere, sharing one same sweet life to the degree to which they feel the eternal breath of God. These souls appeared not because this fear has been allotted them, but as a sign of their less degree of blessedness. Now, to answer your question. um, Page 411. In the eyes of mortal men, our justice appears to be unjust in proof of faith, not of heretical iniquity. But since the truth is such that your own powers can understand its meaning easily, I shall explain it to you. Now if the one who suffers violence contributes nothing to the violent act, he cannot be excused on that account. Here's your answer. For will, if it will not, cannot be quenched, but does as nature does within a flame the violence force it down a thousand times. The will abets the force when it gives in even a little bit. This their will did, for they could have gone back into the cloister. Within that truth, once man's... oh Sorry, for... Had they been able to maintain their will intact like Lawrence did on the gridiron... I think he's the one who refused to be forced to denounce God, So he's, they burned his hand. That's how strong his will was. It's an example in the Old Testament. Had they been able to attain their will intact like that of Lawrence on the grid and um, Lucius cruel to his own hand in fire, he would have forced them back once they were free. But to the path from which they had been drawn, but such firm will as this is seldom found. Same thing he, he describes Constant. Constant's doing the same thing on 4.13. You understand when things like this occur how will and violence can mix to cause offenses that can never be condoned. Absolute will will does not consent to wrong, but it consents insofar as it fears if it draw back to fall into worse trouble. And so Picard in her explanation was speaking of absolute will and I about the other. Call it a relative will. Beloved of the first love, lady divine, I said, you whose words bathe me in warmth, waken me to life again. The depth of my deep love is not profound enough to find the thanks. Um, I see man's mind cannot be satisfied unless it be illumined by that truth beyond which there exists no other truth. That's the absolute will. Within that truth, once man's mind reaches it, it rests like a wild beast within its den, and it can reach it if not all desire is vain. So at the root of truth, like shoots, our doubts spring up. This is a natural force. It was natural for him to doubt it. Um, What she's saying is that um, once they, and they will, where's the, I I missed the line. But she says, once you give your will, you can't take it back. And if if there is a means of taking it back, it can't be you that decide, sorry, um, it's in this. She says you can't if, if once you give your will, particularly to God, if you give your will, it's not yours to take back. You can't, you can't do it. And the principle that he gives is if you are going to change your will, I got sorry, Veronique um, It'll take me too long to find it. But he says if you're going to, if you're going to give it back. Somebody other than you has to give it. The church, because you're too often going to do things in your own self-interest. If you do give it back, you've got to give it back for something greater. So if you if you say you're going to give somebody a quarter, say, and you have to change it, if you're going to renounce that to get your will back again, you have to give fifty cents or you something has to be great enough. Because once you give your will, you've given the greatest thing God's given you. And if you've given it to Him, it's not yours to. So they either should have resisted to the point of violence, death, or or give it in and then went back. And they didn't either. But he, it's interesting, he says, of constant, while she was married, she, well, she, kept, the veil, right? she kept in her heart. She kept committed because she was being <coughs> forced against her will to do that. So in that sense, it was a deficiency, not a perfectly realized, because if it had been perfectly realized, she would have martyred, mm-hmm. like the martyrs. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. and, and Beatrice goes on in that passage, sorry I'm not fine, she says... 4.15. 4.15? 4.15, 4.16. She, she uh, says, oh yeah, 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 thanks. Yeah, the, the sacrifice the free will, wills itself. The comp- compensation can you offer them? And then she goes on, on 4.17, Christians beware of rushing into vows. Do not make whatever vow you take, take it seriously because once you give your will, your will is everything. That's, that's the one thing we have from God. Remember, that was what he gave us, our free wills. Uh, so here, once again, Christ is present. They made a choice with their wills that put them at odds with God, who is the maker of all things. So, moonspots spots and vows couldn't be more different in terms of subject. They're very, they belong to different categories of thought. What Dante showed you is there's God again because he's everywhere in this universe. The question is, do we can we connect these secondary causes to the first cup? Do we see the connection? Most of us don't.
0: I have a question. What you're talking about right here, can we, don't we see in the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, take it away from me and he goes through it. Right. Yeah, right. Um, quickly in in, um, 422 at the level of Mercury, we've entered the world of justice and um, Justinian gives a quick overview of of Roman justice, the the move towards Rome and it begins 422, I love this 422, behold what courage consecrated it, the courage which began that first hour when Pallas died to give it its first realm. Who's Pallas? Somebody who's been here from the beginning. Whose palace, Bev? Whose palace? <laughs> <laughs> here,
0: wait, wait, go quick! I'm reading.
1: Son of a <laughs> <son of laughs> Huh? Son of Vander. Are you here? No. You. Explain it. Go ahead.
0: I was here, but I
1: also read it. No, no, no. <laughs> Explain it. So no, no, not with your notes. Sorry. From your memory, can you remember? Oh, from my memory. No. Read that. Read He was trying. Okay. It,
0: he was with Aeneas, and they were going to fight
1: Turnus and, and,
0: and then, okay, they killed Evander's son.
1: You got it. I. To, I
2: can't.
1: Aeneas had when he first arrived. He had to go to he had to go to see Evander, to make an alliance with him to help because of these wars and to prepare for the war with Turnus. Pallas was his son, this young prince who was full of nobility. He greeted Aeneas when he arrives at, um, at Evander's place. And there's that wonderful scene where Evander takes Aeneas into the woods and we see the primeval force that, that he sets against the capital, you know, and we see the two ages come together. They go back and, um, and the wars with Turnus begin and Turnus and Pallas fight and Turnus kills Pallas and he puts his foot on his body and rips off the belt. And the, it, it's really important because remember the Aeneid ends with um, Aeneas, I mean the Aeneid ends with Aeneas defeating Ternus and contemplating mercy, sparing him and then he sees the belt and remember when the, the difference because when um, Aeneas defeated I mean when Turnus defeated Pallas, he'd scorn. He put his foot on the body and ripped off the belt. When Aeneas defeated um, Mezentius' son, um, God, oh my mind. When, in the next scene, when Aeneas defeats Le- Mezentius, the son who's that brutal, brutal king, um, when he kills him, he says, sad boy, and he leaves his tears, and he tells um, the boy's um, comrades to pick the body up and bear him off to honor him as a hero as he should and his men bear him off. The difference between Aeneas in battle and and uh, Ternus. So they mark the beginning of the Roman eagle, this love for justice that you love it enough to die for it, for the right reason. And remember he at the top of 422 when this your first question is answered now, but I have answered it in such a way that I am forced to add on something more, to make it plain to you how little cause have those who move against the sacred standard, the Guelphs, be it the ones who claim it, the Ghibellines, they're in favor of the Emperor, the Empire, or disdain it, the Gelfs. So he's, he's criticizing both the Ghibellines and the Guelphs, both of whom are striving for justice, but for the wrong reason and the wrong spirit because unlike Pallas Pallas was willing to give his life for something coming into being. So there's this critique that runs through this against both the Gelfs and the Givelling parties and if you've read those notes you know how important strife is the church-state struggle has. Now, I'll go on over on page 425, we're about done. Um, um, Justinian is describing the, the progress of the Roman eagle, the development of his really European culture as everything's moving towards Rome and the founding of Rome. Now marvel at what I shall say to this, 425, later it sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. Titus destroyed Jerusalem. Later it sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. Dante wants to know how you can avenge a vengeance, how you can justly avenge something that was itself justified. On page um, 428, the bottom, this is one of the most remarkable, such a clarifying passage for me the first time I read it the bottom of 428, my intuition which is never wrong informs me. Beatrice is already reading Dante's mind and she says I see what's troubling you. My intuition, which is never wrong, informs me that you do not understand how just vengeance can justly be avenged. What she's referring to is the vengeance taken on Christ. If that was a just act, and it was, otherwise Christ would not have done it, He came to answer our sins. He had to answer justice. So it was right. If that was right, how could it have been right to destroy Jerusalem? How could the Emperor Titus have destroyed it? Because remember the, that line was, how could a to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin, the vengeance of Christ for our ancient sin. Page 429. This is extraordinary, I think. Now listen to my reasoning. Once joined with its first cause, this nature was as it had been when first created, pure and good. When God made Adam, he was good. The nature he made was good, right? God made nothing bad. But by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth and the true life out of God's holy garden, it was chaste. It fell, and Adam sinned. Adam and Eve both, Eve, Eve was tricked. Adam tried to cover it up. Um, then, if the crucifixion can be judged as punishment for the nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice. Why? Because our nature was fallen. Right? When Adam sinned, our nature so that everybody who participated, I mean, that's why we're all in sin. Is everybody clear? So, our, our first fault was our, our original sin is the cause of. If you, I, this, when I think about it, it just amazes me. If you, if you were a serial killer and killed 200 people, would it ever come close to what happens in killing God? I hope that's clear. We put God on the cross. We didn't put a person, we put, I mean, it's a person, but we put God there. God took on our sins, he took on our nature because our nature was falling. So if we looked at the nature that was assumed, there was no act more just. That's why I went to the cross, to answer justice, right? Are we together? Okay. Then if the crucifixion be judged as punishment for the nature assumed, no penalty could bite with greater justice, just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who endured it. Was there any fault in Christ? None. So according to the nature assumed, no act was more just. Unjust. If we look at the person who assumed the nature, no act was more unjust. That's the paradox at the root of Christianity. Thus one event produced different effects. God and the Jews both pleased by this one death for which Earth shook and heaven opened wide. Why were the Jews pleased? For the right reason? No. For the wrong reason. Why was God pleased? For the right reason. Is that clear? Now what she goes on to do on page 431 is explain redemption. And this is, this is the most central book in the whole of the Divine Comedy. So let me just read this quickly and we'll stop. Um, 4.30 at the bottom. Sin is the only power that takes away man's freedom and his likeness to true good and makes him shine less brightly in its light. Middle of 4.30. Now fix your eyes on the infinity of the eternal counsel. Listen well, um, as well as you are able to my words. Dante wants to know why God manage things the way he did. She says, listen well. Given his limits, man could never make amends, never in his humility could man obedient too late, descend as far as once in disobedience he tried to climb. And this is why mankind alone could not make his amends to God. Thus it remained for God in his own ways, his ways I mean, in one of them or both, to bring man back to his integrity but since the deed gratifies more the doer the more it manifests the innate goodness of the good heart from which it springs so then that everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more between the final night and the first day no act so lofty so magnificent was there or shall be by either way for God who gave himself gave every gave even more so that mankind might ra- raise itself again than if he simply had annulled the debt. And any other means would have been less than justice if God's only Son had not humbled himself to take on mortal flesh." Now hold on, let me just quickly summarize this. So, if we look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. If we look to the person who assumed it, no act was more unjust. Why did God take this? means man, man's original sin was disobedience of God. There's no way he could atone for that act because it was against an infinite creator and man is finite. So either God could wipe away the sin completely um, or leave him damned but there was no way for man to achieve justice by atoning himself because he couldn't. Is that clear? Okay, so, God could either have left him damned, because man, we wouldn't have been capable of atoning for that, satisfying that sin, or wiping it away. What's wrong with wiping it away? Because there's no way he could have done that given given the dignity he showed us by giving us free will. To wipe that away would be to completely demean his creation. I hope that's clear. Yeah. Um, the greatest thing he gave us was free will. To just simply wipe it away would to be un- to to denigrate his own act in creating us. So the only way that he could have done this, since the sin was against an infinite God was for a God to take on our nature, to bring an infinite being in and assume our nature to answer our injustice. And no act has ever been as great or ever will be as great as that act in the history of man. Is that clear? Now, if you look at this one canto, it throws a tremendous light on the whole of the inferno. People who don't acknowledge their sin how grave it is, we saw how grave it is, we went through it um, or they won't see the, the, the great thing that's going on in, in purgatory because um, not only is God helping us with his mercy, but he's asking us to be involved in our own struggle to, to attain justice. So the whole way of doing this was that to involve us in our own redemption, to help recover the dignity He gave us by creating us the way He did. Now is that clear? Let me stop. This canto to me is one of the most central because it really explains all of divine providence, what goes on in the inferno, the purgatorio, and, and why the souls are where they are in, in the paradiso and all that we're gonna learn about heaven and the state of blessedness in the paradiso and the rest of time. <laughs> Is that clear? Okay. Okay. I think it's interesting that it's seven. Seven being
2: that Yeah. Yeah. I didn't it, but it's true. I, I know that, that's and knowing not that's that's This is so. I was just a Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Okay. I'm glad. So when you say, is it clear I'm going, <laughs> I understand the
1: concept. <laughs> <laughs> is it clear? No, I got a long bit. That's uh, good. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad. At the beginning
0: of each book, there were a lot of handouts, and, and the church, uh, okay. we could buy that
1: cheap. Okay. Oh, we've got a book. Do you want to buy? We've got books. We've got books, two books, if you want to buy one,